Welcome to 20 Not Something, the podcast for 20-somethings who haven't quite figured out what their something is yet. Each week, I'll be speaking to a different guest about their experiences of this messy decade to reassure you that everything turns out all right in the end. Because doing something in your 20s can actually mean doing anything that makes you happy. Guys, we made it. It is the 20 not something 2021 roundup. There. That was a lot of time to say 20 in one sentence, but I guess that is topical as that's what I've spent most of the year doing. Um, it was so weird when I was putting together clips for this, I was looking back at some of the really early ones in January and I got so nostalgic. So I was like, oh my God, back when I recorded those, we literally didn't get any human contact, like peak lockdown. And you can just hear how happy I am to just be having a conversation with a normal human being. But anyway, I think for that reason, 2021 has been so strange for so many of us because it's been you know a year of extremes um i was saying to a friend the other day that it's definitely been the highest highs and the lowest of lows but yeah we have just about made it so well done welcome um i wanted to compile some of the best bits of the year because we have had a stormer of a year this year when it comes to guests um you have all been so wonderful and taught me and hopefully our listeners I don't know, you guys tell me, um, an awful lot. But yeah, I wish I could have fit everyone into this particular episode, but I think the clips I've chosen pretty much sum us up to a T and have definitely been the most profound learning curves for me, at least. So um, hopefully for you guys as well. So if you're new here, welcome. Please stay, you'll love us. And if you are a devoted fan and have already listened to every single episode four times, aka my lovely mother, then uh, sit back and take a trip down memory lane to all of the best bits of the year. Kicking Things Off is one of my all-time favourite episodes. I realise now that I'm probably going to be saying that about every single one of them, but I genuinely mean it. This is celebrity matchmaker Paul Brunson. Um, You might know him from the likes of Celebs Go Dating and Married at First Sight, but in this particular clip, we are talking all about his love life, getting married in his early 20s, managing to avoid temptation, and this is the bit that gets me, how if he could go back and do it all again, he would actually get married earlier. Take a listen to this. Uh, like we, we literally went from friends to best friends to lovers, right? Which I always say is is a very romantic path to take. And I know not everyone can take that path, but that's the path, you know, that that, that we went on. But I also say uh, I was rejected first, you know, so <laughs> I, I wanted to be, you know, I wanted to be in between the sheets, you know, from day one and it didn't happen that way. So I had to be very patient, you know, do the friend route, um, yeah. you know, uh, so we, so, so we were, um, a committed partnership, if you will, all through my early investment banking days, all through, um, you know, going off to work for the Turkish company, you know, so we, we were, we were solidified partners and I tell you, I don't have regrets, but if I could go back and do things differently, I would have actually gotten married earlier. Interesting. I thought you were going to go the other way then and say, like, wish you had, because I think now there's, 
there's this pressure in your in your early 20s or 20s in general to experiment and try loads of things and the grass is always greener and sometimes you get into a relationship and then you're like oh but I should be single maybe and not being tied down too early so that's really interesting that you say that you should got married earlier why is that yeah because when you find the right one mm. life is better and and that's not just me saying that that's science mm. life is literally better you are healthier, you are happier, you can think more clearly, you can think more creatively, um, you have more financial power, you know, you have, you, you have two brains, you know what I mean? Um, when you're in love and you're in commit, so there's a difference between being in lust and then being in committed love. Mm-hmm. Science, you know, if you look at the science of it, you know, it's, it's drastically different. So when you're in committed love, you're able to almost self-actualized, like you're able to see and feel and live out the best of yourself. So I already knew I was in love. She already knew she was in love, but we waited because of all the things that society tells us to do. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, make sure you have a job with enough income. Make sure that you're able to get a house. Make sure you're able to uh, you know, buy a, a super expensive engagement ring. Like Mm -hmm. make sure you're able to do all of this nonsense. That means nothing. Right. But society is built that way. So I wish I, I, you know, I'm happy that we did it at 25, but if I could have done it at 21, 22, I would have, because in the, in my early twenties, we lived apart. Right. She lived in a different city than I lived. So there was that distance, which creates emotional turmoil, which creates stress, right? Mm-hmm. Which like, so none of that had to happen. So I think, wow, if those things weren't happening and we were actually together, maybe that could have, you know, allowed us to see and live life in a more fulfilled way. Mm-hmm. So I would have, I would have gone earlier if I could have. And you didn't have like temptations or, you know, thoughts of what if, what if I was doing something different at that time? You just knew that she was the one. Yeah. You, you, like you're talking about literally doing things to people. That was a nice question. Like, you have temptations about doing things. I mean, uh, <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, no, not at that time. That's incredible. But, yeah. But, but I'll, I'll tell you, here's how I got to that point is one is I started my dating career. I say earlier than most human beings, the 99% of human beings. I started when I was like four or five years old. <laughs> and everyone was like, no, but seriously, when we used to take naps in what we called uh, a nursery school, pre-nursery, right? Uh, literally, they would write notes home to my mom. Paul like take naps with the girls. <laughs> he always is, when, when everyone wakes up, he's in a sleeping bag with the girls. I don't understand what's happening. So, I started, I, I definitely started earlier and mm. with the wild dude, you know, early, like I was the early wild guy, right? So I understood that being wild, that there was an excitement to being wild. Mm. But when you're able to commit, you're able actually to level up, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and everyone eventually gets it. You know, all the like the player players, hustler hustlers, like those dudes, they eventually get it. Mm. But sometimes they don't get it until they're 50, 60 years old. Mm. You know what I mean? 
I got it when I was 18, 19. I got it. So I wasn't by 21, 22, I wasn't concerned about, oh, there's all these other women. Because when you find the one and you realize that everything is better about life with that one, Mm. you have no need for anyone else. Mm. You just don't. What a guy. Oh my gosh. If there is a pool 2.0 out there somewhere, feel free to slide into my DMs. Uh, as well in this episode, Paul also goes on to talk about the importance of loving and accepting ourselves first before we find a partner. And that really uh, reminded me, seamless link incoming, of the wonderful chat I had with Poppy Jamie, whose company Happy Not Perfect is built on this concept of accepting ourselves for exactly who we are and not striving for perfectionism. Um, And in this particular clip, she explains to me why it is that so many of us never quite feel like we're enough. Super interesting. Um, Here we go. Where do you think that comes from, that feeling of just not being good enough? So when we're little, we obviously don't have, well, first of all, our brain isn't fully formed. It, uh, when we're, when we turn 25 and obviously it's not exactly the 25th birthday, but it takes up to 25 years for our brain to fully form and the prefrontal cortex, which is the computer side of the brain to, uh, fully develop. So in our teenage years, we do not have the wise part of our brain, Mm. um, fully formed. And so it means that we take on everything mostly as fact. So when Whatever happens around us, we interpret it and turn it into a set of rules and beliefs for how we understand the world around us. So, for example, in my 12-year-old diary entries that I included in the book, it's so sad. I inc- they're, they're all about being dumped. <laughs> Not that I even Same. had. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> They weren't even kind of, it's not like we even had like relationships or any description. It was basically like, oh, you're going out with so-and-so and you never spoke to them. You didn't even hold hands. It was just this kind of unwritten rule that yeah. you're going out with someone. And uh, and then they would dump you. <laughs> and, you know, obviously I, you know, I, when we're that little, we don't have the perspective to go, this is a 12 year old boy. Of mm. course, you know, what on earth are we even doing here? Like, what does even dumping mean? It, it means nothing about me. But because we don't have any perspective, we just take that on as, oh my God, that's rejection. And so, mm. as a consequence, our brain goes, oh my gosh, well, maybe if I was better, then they wouldn't have rejected me. And let's say a friend is mean to you. And then you go, oh, well, maybe if I was cooler, maybe I was better, maybe if I was prettier, maybe if I was, that would, they wouldn't have rejected me. And especially if anyone has gone, has been, you know, gone through bullying, which I feel all of us have in different shapes and forms, bullying, you know, there's a belief that, oh, I wouldn't be bullied if I was better. Mm. And so we all start believing, well, we're not good enough as we are. And we all have the same needs. Every single human being wants to feel loved, enough and accepted. Those things we are all craving from such a young age. And so when we don't feel like we're enough and we don't feel accepted, we turn that into usually like self-criticism of ourselves. Yeah, it all just like makes so much sense when you put it like that. I get I guess like when when we're at school we don't think about how like those sort of previous um 
encounters, which seems so minimal, you know, to, to an outsider, like being dumped by a boy you've known for two weeks, but they all add right. up, don't they? Right. And then, totally. yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. micro wounds. And so when people say, oh, do you have mental health? It's like saying, has anybody been cut? Has anyone fallen over? Everybody put their hands up. Go, oh, God, yeah, I've had a physical bruise. Mm. But we all have we all have emotional bruises. And so we all go through life and we all got slightly hit in different ways. And it could be as, you know, as minor as, oh, not being picked for the team, but you really wanted to be a part of the team because the sports team meant that you felt you were you you felt a sense of belonging that we have all developed from, you know, caveman times. And so our great ancestors, that was the word I was looking for, our great ancestors. To be a part of the tribe meant a sense of belonging. They were safe if they were part of, part of a tribe. They would get food, they'd be looked after. If you were excluded from the tribe, our fear senses within go, oh my God, alarm, 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 this could mean danger. So if you're not picked for the team, if you don't feel like you were enough for a particular social group at school, that would probably make anybody feel very stressed inside, even if they weren't old enough to even acknowledge that it was stress that they were feeling, it wouldn't have felt very nice. Yeah. And that not nice feeling, we turn into beliefs about ourselves. And what kind of a story my mother, who's a psychotherapist, told me, she had a client who was in their 60s and um, he, for his entire life, had experienced depression. And so my mother, you know, obviously in, in, in therapy, you kind of go through, well, how, how has today come about? What are the things that potentially happened in your life to cause you to believe this about yourself and the world? Anyway, so after a couple of sessions, he suddenly goes, oh my God, I remember a time when I was six and I stood up in class and, and I was asked to spell my name. And I got so nervous that I forgot. And the whole class turned around and said, you're so stupid, you're so stupid, as just kind of kids don't realise how mean they are. Now, this man forever, for 50 years, believed that he was stupid. So he didn't put himself forward for jobs. He dropped out of school. He didn't feel like he'd have a relationship because he didn't think he was clever enough. And then at 60, having his whole life being ruined by just by a moment and he said he broke down to tears and he said, oh my God, I realise now I'm not stupid. Oh my gosh. And it just shows you like, for anyone listening, really challenge what you believe is true about you. Because usually you've been told it by somebody that probably didn't even mean it or was never about you in the first place. And you've you've turned a meaningless event into something that you believe has that you believe is about you. Mm. It, can, it can totally ruin and affect our lives forever if we don't really delve in and go, mm, okay, I'm willing to reassess all the thoughts I have about myself. This episode genuinely changed so much for me. I really hope it resonated with you guys as well. You know, the power of questioning and investigating what we think to be true about ourselves has changed my fucking life. 
Um, anyway, next up, we've got an episode right from the beginning of the year with my good friend, Emma Fleming. Um, so this one was actually a bonus episode and it's slightly different because Emma is still in her mid twenties. We're actually the same age, but we were talking all about decision making. And I loved this part of the conversation where we talk about the dangers of parallel universes and whether regret can actually be perceived as a positive thing. I was actually reading up a little bit on decision making before this chat and um, I've realised that in all the articles I read, the one thing that came up the most, which is what people are so afraid of, is um, a fear of future regret, which I find really powerful because that is so true. Every time I make a decision, I'm fearful of how future Emma is going to look back at it. Um, Yeah. I don't know whether you experience the same. Oh my God, completely. And I think that, I think nowadays, especially, we have so much access to everyone's lives and what decisions led them to that. And there's so much pressure to compare and to be on that same sort of timeline. And so it makes you terrified to get it wrong in case that knocks you off course. And the nicest thing is when you see things like, you know, you're meant to have it all figured out when you're an adult and you realise absolutely no one has got it figured out because I think it relieves some of that pressure to know what to do because I don't know. I I don't know if I'm a believer in fate or whatever. I think it's more just whatever happens to you happens because of the decisions you made and you Mm -hmm. don't have the option to look at some parallel universe where what else could have happened. But, you know, I just, I find it, I'm so happy that I didn't work as hard as I could have at school because I didn't get into my first choice of uni. So I went to Loughborough. I met you. I met all my best friends. I met, you know, my best friend, Emily, who introduced me to her best friend, Fraser, who introduced me to his best friend, Jack. Jack's now my boyfriend. Mm. Is that all because I didn't work as hard at school? Mm. Like, I just think that whatever happens to you is going to happen. And so just enjoy what positives came with that. And don't think Mm -hmm. too much on the negatives and the what ifs or what could have been, because you'll never know. And it's exhausting. Like I go round and round in circles. I've made some pretty big decisions in the last few months. And I keep thinking to myself, like sat on the sofa at 8pm at night with a bowl of Maltesers because living the high life, (laughs) just thinking like, oh, what would be happening right now? And it's such a horrible, annoying thought because it's like, but it's not, Emma, it's not happening. This is happening. And that all comes back to sort of I struggle personally with just being in the present moment and accepting that everything that's happened is happening. Oh, it's a doggy. But yeah, like everything is happening as you said, because you have made the decision to, do you, do you think that you've ever regretted a decision? Like if you had to pick one from your life. Oh God. I think it's really good if you don't, by the way, because I'm personally trying to not. I think not necessarily decisions. I've, well, yeah, it is a decision, but it's sort of small things. I, I've regretted choices of words in mm. conversations or arguments or, um, yeah, not not big things because I just think if you if you live like that, then you'll just, you'll go insane. But I've definitely, I've, I've looked and wished and wished that I've handled things differently. Mm. But then 
equally at the same time, I think the capacity to look back on stuff and regret them is just a sign that you've grown or you've developed your opinion or your understanding or perception on something. So maybe it is a good thing because I think if you're sort of never questioning yourself or taking accountability for whatever it might be, then you're never learning. And so maybe it is a good thing to sort of regret. So in the peak of lockdown 3.0, I also had the pleasure of interviewing comedian Fern Brady. This episode was actually called Being Broke and Breaking Barriers, um, because as a stand-up comic, that was mostly Fern's experiences of the decade. And um, in this particular clip, she is talking about being a female in stand-up comedy and actually compares her experiences of working in that industry with when she used to work in strip clubs as a student. It's really, really interesting because she goes on to open up about how she found her appearance and her weight to be judged in both industries and what it means to work as a woman in a male-dominated space. And it's interesting that you chose stand-up comedy in a way because, you know, you said as a kid you were quite shy and Mm. I think like stand-up comedy is potentially one of the most terrifying jobs you can do, like literally standing in front of a room full of people and prepared to be judged by them. Um, So where did that come from, like that sort of interest in in stand-up? Well, I didn't grow up watching stand-up and... um... I understand normal, uh, normal, like how a lot of people find public speaking terrifying, but I find um, group social situations quite hard. Whereas with stand up, you're alone and just getting to talk to people and not having to monitor a lot of different things going on at once. So it it feels quite calming for me, apart from when you're getting like put off stage and stuff. <laughs> Does that happen to you? Yeah. No way. <laughs> Ever heard of a place called Hornchurch in Essex? <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, oh yeah, and it's happened in uh, Hampton. Hampton Court is like the most infamous one in my mind. <laughs> yeah, I got like chased out by this pregnant woman and two men. What? Um, but uh compared to normal social situations i find it quite common but i didn't uh watch stand-up growing up so i'd weirdly i've never seen like billy Connolly, which is quite odd if you're scottish mm-hmm. and um or any any stand-up um the first time i saw stand-up was a guy i was going out with took me to see brendan burns uh an australian comic right. and that was the first time i'd seen stand up that I thought it was people just doing one-liner jokes and then there was just this guy being really alpha and shouting on stage and I was like I want to do that or also and I saw Jim Jeffries as well and I was like I want to do that type of comedy without being a huge misogynist and saying <laughs> like horrific stuff about women yeah yeah but, I, but then there weren't any I couldn't see any female comics that um looked like what I wanted to do and it's so much better now because I've, I can see I've said this in loads of things but it's very exciting to see the legacy that Catherine Ryan and Sarah Pascoe have had you can kind of tell what new female stand-ups are into them because they're both really different do you know what I mean you can kind of yeah. see it on the circuit hundred percent. Um, yeah. And I know that you've said, actually, it was, uh, I think it was an article in the Glasgow Times that you did about um, 
how sexism was actually really rife and it was worse than mm. in the strip clubs where you worked and you said this great line mm. and you said that the strip clubs were actually more honest mm. <laughs> and I just wanted to get your um maybe do a little compare and contrast of the two you know the experience of working in the strip clubs and then being a female comic because I think that they're two areas which are almost neglected when we talk about feminism and sexism yeah it's weird that um people would think of them as two uh desperate or how do you say that word? Disparate? <laughs> Two separate worlds because they're um, both linked because stand-up comedy started in strip clubs. Uh, it's just that it was men doing it. Um, I think Joan Rivers had to perform in strip clubs. It was the entertainment on between the strippers. But anyway, there's, there's a lot of similarities to me in that. Well, what I find interesting is in a strip club, you're there to be ornamental and laugh and smile at the men. That's how you do best. Uh, and in television, on panel shows, you're expected to laugh and smile at the men and be an mm. ornament in a dress, except we pretend that isn't the case, except it blatantly is if you look at the big fat quiz of the year lineup. or um, I mean, there's some panel shows that are getting better, but largely... Women on television are still younger and thinner than the men. Even mm. things like this morning, um, Philip Schofield's about 60 or something and there's always going to be a younger female host. Or mm. uh, Piers Morgan and Susanna Reid. You can tell that I've been off work for a year. Yeah, Piers Morgan looks like a giant ham and then Susanna Reid has to be incredibly beautiful and she's in her 40s yeah. um, but people just take that in their stride whereas um, uh, yeah so it's been really interesting to me yeah, um, that, that is really interesting and I never would have thought that the two would be comparable in any way but the way you've just said that like it actually does ring true um, it's the, the dishonesty of it. You really are expected. I, I've I lost weight for well, fucking not now. But when I started uh, comedy, um, I was fatter than I am now, um, and I didn't care about it. And then I did a comedy competition where I was in the final, and another girl in the competition got signed to a big agency straight away, even though she didn't really tell jokes, but she was really thin and beautiful and I looked at the pictures of us on stage at the at the final and I just was this like fucking lump I looked like a hippo and just something in my mind clicked where it was like you're gonna have to lose weight to get ahead in this but no one's ever gonna say that to you because people find it unacceptable to say that but yeah. it's the truth or I would have to be so fat that it's like my sort of shtick that's right. That's a big unspoken thing for women in comedy. It's it is getting better now, mm. a bit, but not enough that I would that I'll ever feel relaxed about it. And mm. that's depressing that I care more about my weight now than when I was in my pants and bra in a strip club. <laughs> 
Next up, we've got CEO Lewis Jenkins. Now, this conversation stuck with me particularly because as someone who is always desperately reaching for the next thing and box ticking my way through life, Lewis properly pulled me up on it and he was like, you are never going to be happy if you constantly tried to fill a void with the things that you think that you want. So this is him explaining how the worst thing that ever happened to him was when he got everything he thought he wanted. Um, So yeah, prepare to rethink everything you think you know about life. And it's the thing with life, isn't it? You're constantly waiting. And only in the last couple of years have I let that go. This sense that you will arrive at some point, this sense that there is something to be achieved, that there is something to attain, and then it will click into place. And I've watched it like with my friends and my good self where I'm like, I'm going to get married. That will tick a box. And within six weeks, I was divorced. It was like, all right, I'm going to buy this house. That'll do it. And it's like, I'm, you know, you're dissatisfied within weeks. And so you go through life with this kind of checklist of shit. I just need to be fixed because I'm not whole. And then it's somewhere along the line, you realize that no job fills that hole. No other, no other person fills that hole. No, no like sick car fills that hole as much as it might be fun. It, you've just got to try and acknowledge that actually that hole is like a nice space for you to be in and it's all right. And you're going to die anyway. Yeah. So if you piss your pants about it, like in the long run, we're all dead, as Keen said, right? So it's, it doesn't, you know, if you if you get too hung up on like attainment, mm. then you end up just constantly chasing, chasing, chasing. And like the, the, the real sharp end of that is like addiction, right? Where you're just like, all I need is another fix. And I think a lot of us do that. And a lot of technology is geared towards that kind of, that kind of quick fix, like dopamine kind of, mm. right, another one, another one, another like scroll, scroll. So I think I try and stay away from that. And a lot of that, a lot of my time now is spent managing that. But anyway, it's not about, yeah. it's about Tony, so Yeah. But it is, we do live in a perfectionist culture and I am such uh, so guilty of what you just said. Like, oh, once I get to here, I'll be happy. And once I get to do this, I'll be happy. And only now in my mid-20s, I'm sort of realising that everything I sort of wanted five years ago, I've actually got now, but I'm not content with it at all. Right. And that's really strange. Yeah, the, the worst thing to happen to you, and it's the worst thing that ever happened to me was when I got everything I wanted. So I was mm. like, by the by the time I'd hit 30, I was kind of on the board of directors of a multinational, which was um, uh, the intern group, which you, you did an internship in. And and I set up the Australian entity. It was a big deal. We'd scaled quickly. We'd done super well. We won awards and stuff. And it was like, I had a big house. I just got married. And, and I was really like box ticking. You know, the person I married was like very posh. We got married at the Hurlingham Club. It was a big, it was a big deal. And... Um, Within, you know, within six weeks, I found out that uh, she she was with a next door neighbor and he was married and his missus was pregnant. So I lost my house, my dogs, my wife um, and my home and uh, basically my job as well, because it was in Australia and the visa was tied to that. So that's why I had to sell a company. So I lost everything in like uh, a matter of a couple of weeks. And that was before the wedding video was done, right? So it was just such a weird oh experience. And I was just like, and that, that was me like getting everything I wanted, you know? That was me, the, like the days before I was like, oh yeah, smug, I've nailed it. And then I realized that I'd, in, in trying to get everything I wanted, I'd actually become a dickhead. Like I hadn't, I didn't even like myself either. So the whole thing was just a bit of a disaster. But it was like, and now I look back and it's, that was kind of uh, five, six years ago now. And it was kind of the best thing that ever happened to me because I'd just be a bit bored. And I was just like, you know what? I need to start again. I need to look long and hard. 
so yeah all of that was a bit of a shit show but like that was a, is a good example in my life of like you can try and do all these things and can put a certain control on the world and say i'm going to tick all these boxes and once i've attained this then everything else will be fine and in fact for me it was quite the opposite where i'd realized once I I'd kind of lost sight of everything I, I was in order to try and become something that in the end I didn't want to be, you know. So on the topic of attaining things and trying to achieve another seamless link coming up for you here, uh, I've found that sometimes a lot of us find it really hard to actually admit to what we want. Um, and Alpine skiing Olympian Shemi Alcott was one of those people in her 20s. So this snippet, we talk about the fear that she had surrounding her best not being good enough and how so many of us go through life not putting 100% effort in because then it's easier to deal with when things go wrong as your ego sort of knows you weren't putting your best out there. Um, and, you know, from a sporting perspective and just from a general life, it was so interesting hearing Shemi's story and how she finally got over that and just actually was like you know what fuck it I'm just gonna I'm just gonna run this into the ground 100 miles an hour and go so yeah enjoy this little snippet in your note to me you said as well that in the early parts of your 20s um you used to only give 80 percent for fear of not being able to be your best self and I'm so glad that you raised that because I think so many people can wholly relate to that feeling I certainly can of not wanting to give everything just in case it doesn't go to plan. There's a really, you know, dangerous, uh, vicious circle going on in our society right now because I mentor quite a few young female athletes and they don't want to be seen to be trying their best because it's not cool. And I can mm. see how driven they are and how competitive they are, but they don't want to be that pushy uh, young girl. And it's quite sad, actually, because... As a boy, as a boy, some of the guys I see who are driven and they say they want to win, we go, you know what, great, that's such good confidence. Whereas when a girl says it, it's like, oh, gosh, she's got an ego. And it's horrendous. So I think that's something that, first of all, we really, really need to change. And uh, and secondly, it's just it's really sad. And I think people need to go out there and say, you know, I want to win. And looking back at my 20s, I always wanted to win. But I had this cloud over me where I wasn't able to perform at my best ability because I had this, I was so scared of this fear of letting everyone down, this fear of failure. I had all these people investing emotionally, financially in my career. And if I didn't win, then I'd have to tell them all that I just wasn't good enough. And so instead of that, I I skied at 80% and I kept 20% in my back pocket, knowing that when I came down and I wasn't winning, I could, I could make peace with myself because I knew that I wasn't going my best. And it, it's a really dangerous, vicious cycle to get in. And, I, you know, I was the best in Britain and on the world scale, I was top 20 to 30. It was OK. But I never I never had that confidence to unleash and take risk um, until one day, um, it, as you said. So Turin, the downhill there in the Olympics in 2006 when I came 11th, that was a starting point for what happened in 2008 in Solden and Basically, I had a really bad first run and you only get a second run if you're top 30. And I was 31st. Um, And so we started leaving the race and then we found out a girl had been disqualified. So we turned around and we went back up and I stood in that start gate and I had no expectations for the first time because I genuinely didn't believe that anything good can come of this run because I was so ill prepared with happened after the first run so I just charged and launched and it was the most imperfect run I've ever had in my life which was really important for me because that meant it was fast 
I'd always tried to be this perfectionist in everything. You know, I want people to like me. I'm a people pleaser. I also want to be perfect with everything. But actually in a sport like skiing, you've got to just let it go and you just got to charge. And obviously there's that fine, the really small line between success and injury because you've got to push yourself, you've got to take risk and injury is, is a result of that. Um, but it was, a, and, you know, after that day, I had loads of injuries. In fact, on paper, I guess my career probably looked better before, but for me, I knew that every time I pushed out that start gate, I was pushing out to win and be my best. And it was a much easier ride to take when those injuries came because I knew that, you know, I was pushing it. Yeah. And you were being authentic to your true self, which, you know, as we were talking about earlier, is a really hard thing to do. Um, I guess when, when you did do that race and you came out the other side and you realized like that shift must have just been phenomenal for you like it must have changed your whole game it's great I remember I was standing in the finish area and I was in the winner's enclosure for so long and I was just blown away I kept beating girl after girl after girl and and my coaches came down and I was crazy happy and and they were quite mellow and I was like are you guys not you know you're not stoked about this and they said course we are but we knew you had it in you we believed it all along was waiting for it. whereas I that it took that for me to start believing in myself um so yeah that was quite great actually I knew that I had great coaches because they weren't on that same kind of surprise <laughs> happiness yeah. level as I was which just goes to show that it all does come back to self-belief. Like you can have people surround, you know, surrounding you who have full faith in you, like your coaches did. But until you realise your true potential, no, like nothing's going to change. I guess you have to be the one to find that growth mindset yourself, mm. to believe that you can smash through the ceiling of your capabilities. And you can have people telling you all the time. I mean, that's what's one thing I think is your parents are amazing, but they have to believe in you. You know, it's. As soon as someone external starts believing you, that's when you know that you can make it in, in sport and life. For sure. Yeah. So rounding off our roundup is potentially the biggest interview I have ever done. It was, of course, with the one and only Elizabeth Day, who for those of you who are avid listeners will know I am low-key obsessed with. Um, yeah, we both cried, we both laughed. And for me, especially, it was just one of those moments where, you know, when you envisage something happening for like such a long time and then it happens and you're like, was that even real? <laughs> um, but yeah, it was an incredible experience. And when I first started this podcast, I said to a friend, if I ever get to have Elizabeth Day on the show, I will be the happiest person in the world and I would have completed life. Um, so yeah, it was a properly profound moment for me. And honestly, maybe the most incredible thing to happen, not just in 2021, but in general life as I know it. Anyway, <laughs> after... <laughs> God, I sound so obsessed, but I actually am. Like, that's why it's so amazing. <laughs> um, but in this particular clip, Elizabeth talks about how age is where all of her strength and power has come from and that you really never know what's around the corner. Um, and she was incredibly reassuring and heartwarming and just made me smile for days afterwards. So I hope you enjoy this little snippet. Did you find that you were in a rush to get places in your 20s because that's something that I personally see a lot of it's like everyone wants to achieve something quickly and I don't know whether that's because I've been raised in a world of sort of instant gratification and instant yeah. hits and dopamine and stuff like where the world is so available and it's so open and you can do so much 
did yeah. you experience that as well? That's such an interesting point because I definitely did experience that, but I didn't have the same level of cultural immediacy in the sense that Deliveroo didn't exist. Like, <laughs> um, Instagram didn't exist. You know, the internet, I make myself sound like I was born in 1822, but the internet was essentially all like just about taking off when I went to university. So it was still like, you know, when I joined the Evening Standard, it was my first job out of uni, you could still smoke in the office. Like that's how, <laughs> how far back it was. Um, but uh, you're so right that I definitely did feel like I needed to get somewhere quickly. Mm. So my 20s, it still felt very competitive. And although we didn't have like the crushing overwhelm of competing with everyone that we see globally on Instagram, we did experience the competitiveness amongst our peer groups. Mm. And I was living in a house share in Clapham, like almost everyone else who'd recently graduated. <laughs> um, and uh, so it was quite easy to find people to compare yourself to, but the scale was smaller. But I think actually the person I was comparing myself most to was was myself. Like I am my own toughest critic and I've learned a lot more self-compassion as the years have gone on mm. because I've just realized that my own expectations for myself are deeply unrealistic <laughs> and I wouldn't have those same expectations of anyone else. I really wouldn't. Um, but I think I was my own worst critic. And I think your 20s, again, there's this kind of mythology that you have to achieve things young for the achievement to be worthwhile or to be of merit. Mm. And I just remember living in a sort of semi-fear of no longer being young, of, of reaching 30 and feeling like no one would ever say about me again, wow, you're so young to be doing this. Right? Mm. And that was really important to me. It's sort of part of my identity. And I, yeah, so I, to, to cut a very long answer short, I definitely did still feel that. And because I was very clear at quite a young age in a sort of very odd way about what I wanted to be. I wanted to be an author. And before that, I was going to be a journalist and I was going to learn my writing craft. So in a way, I set myself my goals and I was quite impatient to get there. I was like impatient to be a feature writer on a newspaper and then to start writing novels. And my 20s, I was like a news reporter, a diary columnist, a religious affairs correspondent. And I was like, oh, so frustrated that I was sort of almost there, but not quite. Mm. But I mean, patience pays off, doesn't it? Because I mean, look at you now. Like, I wonder if, you know, you ever thought that that was going to happen? Never in a million years. Really? I, I never thought I would launch a podcast, number one. Mm. I mean, it's not that I eliminated it from my consciousness but actually back then podcast didn't exist so it wasn't even on the radar yeah. but it was just it was such a lesson to me I mean the last few years of my life have been a huge growing period for me and that's why I really do value the chance to say on this podcast if anyone is listening and feeling lost in their 20s but actually in any particular decade it's okay because it, it just it might not be it might not feel like it's your time right now that's not to say that you won't grow into something that you couldn't even have anticipated mm. and my experience has definitely been that I feel more successful and when I say successful I mean more in tune with who I really am <laughs> I definitely feel 
like far more authentic, content, fulfilled mm. with every year that passes. And I definitely feel like I've hit my stride in my 40s in a way that I couldn't have imagined in my 20s. Mm. And so we've been sold a myth that youth is the most powerful state we can inhabit. And I just want to deconstruct that and say, you know, maybe you're having a brilliant time in your 20s and I'm so happy for you. But if you're not, age is actually where, for me, all of my strength and power has come from and all of my self-realization. So I think that's a really, that's why I love the premise of this podcast. Oh, what a way to round off the year. Um, Thank you so much, everyone, for sticking around this long. And if you're hearing this now, for listening to an entire episode, that's great. Um, We will be back in 2022 with season five. We've already got some cracking guests lined up. I am so, so, so excited. Um, And yeah, it's going to be, it's going to be big. So stay tuned for that. Um, And in the meantime, have a wonderful Christmas and New Year and eat lots of mince pies and drink lots of mulled wine and don't stress so much about shit that doesn't really matter because that's what I'm going to try and do. (laughs) Um, But yeah, take care, everyone. Thank you so much again. And a huge shout out to the composer and producer of this podcast, Pete Haff. You're bloody fantastic. Thanks for everything that you do. And yeah, for you guys at home, stay safe, have a wonderful Christmas and we'll see you in the new year.